Hello and welcome to the latest bonus episode of the Dive Down and Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago. With me on the line from Denver, Colorado, my co-host, the one and only Shane Beeps. Good morning, Shane. Good morning. It's early. Uh, this is not about me, though. I, f- I feel like we should we should focus as strongly as possible on our very special guest for this bonus episode. And why don't you introduce him, Stanislav? That's right. I'm so excited to introduce and have with us today the brand new Magic Set Champion, the Neon Dynasty Champion himself. It's Eli Cassis. Oh, thanks, guys. I'm actually impressed you guys had the title correct. <laughs> the, the set champion? I, I just call it Pro Tour. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a topic that we, we can immediately dive into. Uh, yeah, maybe but, we should. But first. But first, at the start of all of these shows, Ely, before we even introduce you formally, we want to get warmed up very quickly with five questions. Just to understand who you are as a Magic player. We call it Inside the Grinder Studio. You can answer in one word, a sentence, context. 5,000 words. Yeah, however much or as little detail as you want. Question the first. What's your favorite magic card? Uh, Knight of the Reliquary. <sighs> Craig's going to be so happy. Ah, this, first time anyone has answered this with that one. What about least favorite magic card? Pox. <laughs> Can we, can we? I want to go back for one second. I want to go back. We. I don't think we do this enough. Um, first off, also, I do want to. I do want to mention that uh, one of Evie's children is is cutely sitting with him in his office. So you might hear like a, a little random background noise. But Knight of the Reliquary. Why is that your favorite card? Uh, you know, it was actually just like a dominant card in Legacy back in the day for so long. And it was just so much fun having like an interactive ability with a card that beat down. It's it's very mid-rangey style, just like the Orzov deck I just won with. And that's always just, uh, I don't know, suited my fancy, so to speak. For sure. And least favorite card is Pox. And what is your favorite format of Magic? Right now, it's Modern. Oh, we're going to uh, have a lot our, to talk about. Our guy... <laughs> so you have a long career of competitive magic oh, yeah. online and in paper now i'm curious do you have a biggest misplay that sticks out to you that still keeps you up at night yeah i mean i think everybody has misplays and the one that i remember most is um game three of my other pt top eight uh sorry it was game five game five and uh, I overextended a smidge because I was just so excited for victory. And my opponents, one of Massacre Girl, came in out of their sideboard, which I don't think they had been boarding in previously. And they just decided to try it for this game. And it perfectly got me because I overextended. And I still feel like to this day that cost me potentially advancing in the top eight of the PT. Ugh. I didn't need it. I had two five fives on board and a few other one ones, and my opponent was like an empty board. And I was just like, "Yeah, let's run another five five out there, just cause." And then, bleh, sweet. <laughs> wow, is this the one in Richmond when you yeah. put Golgari aggro? Exactly. Yucky. Yucky. What's yucky? My misplay. <laughs> <laughs> And you know you had your own massacre girls in that in that deck. It looks like 
I did. Yeah, that was a complicated matchup. When you had Veil of Summer and Oko, there was a lot of uh, overpowered cards that are now banned. Wow. All right, last question, lightning round. What is your favorite piece of Magic the Gathering slang? Favorite piece of Ma- Magic the Gathering slang? That's an interesting question. Um, hmm. I guess I just like when people say YOLO and they take a <laughs> risk and go for it. <laughs> yeah, love it. So yeah, as we teased up early in the show, you just won the Neon Dynasty Set Championship. We're very happy for you. And, you. you know, we, we've been fans of your work for a long time. I think I first discovered you in the modern Phoenix, is it Phoenix era? Like, and I've just, I, you were an innovator of that deck. I think you kind of picked up the torch that, that Ross first lit, if I recall correctly. That's very correct. Yeah. I saw Ross win an open with it. And then I started piloting it. And then I added green to it because at the time KCI was huge. And Ancient Grudge was a sweet card to discard to Faithless Looting. So that was my innovative tech. And then I won a Grand Prix in California that January of that year with it. Does your family, do your kids acknowledge that you just won a set championship, a pro tour? <laughs> uh, no, not my kids. My my wife's quite supportive. She's like uh, really excited for me. She was rooting me on the entire time and just making sure the kids didn't burst in and interrupt while I was on uh, streaming in front of thousands <laughs> of people. So that was really nice. But the kids, this one's too young. The older one, he plays a little bit, but he's just, I don't know, not very interested. He'd rather play his own video games. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you have an SCG Invitational win. 2017, you have two GP wins in 2018 and 2019. Um, but is this does this win feel different? Is this like a pro tour level win for you? I for sure feels different, but I'd still feel and if I'm going just based off feeling that my um, paper PT top eight was probably my still biggest accomplishment. Yeah, but this one feels like it rivals it. It's it's close. It's just I don't know, not set in the magnitude <laughs> of it. Just, yeah. The rebranding isn't uh, sitting as well as I'd like it to. Yeah, I feel like people, at least viewers, have had like a little bit of a challenging time transitioning sort of mentally to the digital environment of competition. But as a as a player, how do you enjoy this this digital environment and the environment of the set champions championships? Uh, well, I mean, I enjoy the fact that it's convenient. I can play from home, don't have to make arrangements, can, you know, see my family and take care of the kids if anything comes up. Uh, but there is definitely an element missing of like being in a PT testing house with your friends and just grinding hours into the night, figuring out what you need to do, even just like finding new restaurants in a new city. So there's definitely positives and minuses i'd say i'd probably rather be in person and play live so i'm really excited that i heard worlds this year is a live tournament not online but uh yeah i mean it's not bad either being online it's just i don't know physical cards in my hand just feel better than playing in a virtual arena did you have a testing team for this particular tournament or or, or, what, what was the preparation for all that like my testing team is kind of an absurd roster here let me show them off for a second so I have Kai, LSV, Raph Levy, 
uh, Gabriel Nastif. I've heard of a few of these people, I suppose. <laughs> JMM, Martin Yuza, Mike Segrist, Reed Duke, Shahar Shenhar. It goes on. We have 17 team members, and it's Team Channel Fireball, so a lot of like mm-hmm. the biggest names. And how did, how did you qualify for this tournament? Well, there's so many the, paths now, right? I'm in the MPL, so we're like automatically gifted invites to it. That's amazing. I actually literally didn't realize that the MPL still existed. You know, it basically doesn't, so <laughs> no worries there. It's actually just a, a paycheck, basically, with no obligation yeah. except playing the set championships. Oh, man, that and sounds then, perfect. Yeah, it's kind of nice. And then uh, we're removed from, like, the point-counting season. Like, we have our own division of it so that you know, it doesn't, like, uh, diminish newcomers' accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. So if you're in the MPL and you're automatically qualified for these events, how do you engage with like magic on the side? Like, do you still ladder on arena? Do you do modern or modern or other MTGO leagues? I will say that I never ladder on arena. Don't want to give it a bad name or anything. It, It does what it does and it's useful for the people that it helps, but I don't find it helpful in testing because it feels skewed a little bit. Uh, if I want to keep skills sharp, I'm usually playing either Magic Online or just testing against teammates through Discord. That's definitely the best way to prepare for big tournaments if I want to be as competitive as possible. Uh, I still attend uh, like SUG events too. I was at um, where was it in Philly a few weeks ago. I'm going to Indianapolis this weekend, and then there's Pittsburgh in a couple weeks. So I still get to play other large events as well, and those are always fun. Uh, so Ely, um, we will be in Dallas, so I can't wait to do a couple. I can't wait to do O three drop and some side <laughs> events at the, at the at the Dallas Modern Thirty K. I actually won't be at that one. No, the, I thought I thought we could be in person. That's the one I'm skipping. It's okay. Uh, it's farther away, right? For you, especially. Yeah, from New York, it's it's pretty far. But Indianapolis is far too. It's just I don't know. I don't go to Texas a lot for events, and I haven't traditionally in the past. Yeah. It's a really nice weather. I'd love to experience <laughs> that. And I have some friends that live there also. But uh, yeah, it's just not been a spot that I've traveled too much. For sure. Um, getting back to the set championship. So you played uh, an Orzov like venture style deck. I guess that's what it's called on on some of these websites. And then uh, as Stan mentioned earlier, uh, is it Phoenix in Historic? How did you go about uh, let's start with your your alchemy deck. How did you start uh, selecting, and why did you choose the Orzov Venture deck? Well, the entire team came up with the deck, and we kind of had a little split. We knew that alchemy was the focus, so I think 14 members focused on alchemy, and three people focused on historic, and I was one of those three people. Oh, okay. So, actually, with the Alchemy deck, I had played two games before the event even started <laughs> with the deck. Ever. Okay. I mean, it doesn't make me feel bad about my <laughs> lack of testing. Maybe my play skill. And the funny thing, too, is I played those two games, piloting Black White against uh, Blue White Control, which I never faced once. So that didn't help me at all. <laughs> Yeah, so t- let's talk quickly because we're not really an alchemy focused podcast. Let's talk quickly about this deck a little bit. Like, was it a, a meta game selection where it's like we think that this deck has really good game against like maybe something like runes or other popular decks, or was it like just the raw power level 
of the deck that you thought was was good or just had so much game because it's kind of a mid-range looking deck yeah i think every testing team expected uh werewolves and runes to be running rampant in this event those were the top two decks going into it so we clearly had a brew and we knew that it beat those two decks specifically so that was the major motivation and uh the team coming up with that build after that, we just tried to adjust it with enough things to be flexible for like the variants that we expected people to bring as well, because you never really see a deck populate more than about 20% of the field. So if it was 20% on both, if the best case scenario was true, that means 60% of the time we were still playing against something else. So we kind of had to look at like how many slots can we adjust to still be combative to anything else we might face. And we also knew like a lot of pros like to play control. So yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, and then one last question on this is did, does this deck actually use the dungeon? Like I know it has some dungeon cards, but are you venturing through entire dungeons with this thing? Um, I venture through the dungeons. Most games I'd say, and uh, usually you're picking the middle dungeon, but uh, the ones to the right and the left both have uses. Like the, the Mad Mage in the finals is a, a spectacular one. And I guess people are giving me the nickname Mad Mage now for having a <laughs> Oh, sick. But the, the dungeon on the right, the Tome, is a great finisher when somebody's at a low life total and you don't want to let them recover. It has a, a drain life effect that can like add to your beatdown. Do you think this brew gave you and, and your team a deck advantage in the tournament were you the only team playing black white venture well i think absolutely it gave us an advantage but the mardu deck that a whole nother team actually came up with was very similar we were running a lot of the same cards they just decided to splash red for some really great cards also that gave them a lot of like uh, circulation so the saga lets you discard cards and draw cards so you don't flood out. But mm -hmm. what we found with black-white is we weren't flooding out that much. A lot of our lands were either man lands or utility lands like Takanuma. And so we didn't actually feel like we needed a third color to, to go different. Two uh, members of our team, myself and another team member, both went 7-0 and in the Swiss with Alchemy. So we really liked our performances, obviously. Uh, some teammates didn't fare so well with the deck, but it was a small number. And I suspect they ran into a lot of things like blue-white control, which just gets to like outvalue us. And we don't have enough um, Axis battles with the blue-white control deck because you have to run four Archons to expect Ruins, mm -hmm. which is ironic because I didn't play Ruins once. Do you think it's important to ahead in a high level event like this to try to approach the metagame with a unique deck that can give you an advantage that might surprise your opponents? Or was it an environment where trying to pick up the best deck in the metagame didn't necessarily come off as like the best strategy to, to attack the tournament? To me, this is an interesting question because it gets it gets asked a lot and it's theorized a lot and everybody has an opinion, but I see it as a rock, paper, scissor battle that you're either going with the mainline deck and expecting everybody to think that everybody's moved off of the deck because of that, or you're playing the deck that beats the mainline deck, you think everybody's sticking with it, or you're playing the third deck that beats the deck that beats the mainline deck, and uh, you can get lost in that mindset. So really, I just try to avoid that thought mentality, predict the percentages that each people might play of each deck, and then build a deck that I feel is both consistent and good against the top contenders. 
You know, makes sense because I think you can, you can get lost in leveling for sure, right? Where it's like, yeah. what what did well? Like in like right now, like sometimes there's like a series of events where it's like, what did well last week or two weeks ago? And do I think that everyone's going to flock to that deck, or do I think people are going to try to level that deck? And like, I I do I do think there's a lot of diminishing returns versus just like playing a good deck and practicing with it, right? Absolutely, yeah. I'd love to, as long as we're on the topic, talk about alchemy for a second. You know, a player of your pedigree, and, you know, you've been in this game for so long, what do you think of alchemy as a format that uses, like, these digital-only cards that, you know, maybe tries to compete with, like, Hearthstone mechanically? Hmm. Do you like this approach for magic? Do you, Is it something that you'd prefer to do less of competitively? I don't like when something is virtual only because I can't um, transcribe it to the physical plane. So like doing something that can only be done online. For instance, I had somebody on my uh, Facebook post where I had like posted my, yeah, I won. Congratulations type post. <laughs> somebody goes, oh, congratulations. That's so amazing. Um, my husband's big fan of yours and wants to buy a copy of your deck. And I was like, oh, you can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> and so, like, that was kind of, like, unfortunate to say just because certain I never cards thought about that, that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, you would, like, uh, see these World Championship decks be commemorated with, like, these deck series that you could buy. And they were, like, gold yeah. border. Then you could play, like, John Finkel's deck. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. you can't do that anymore because it's all, it's all virtual. And some of these cards don't exist in person. And it's nice to like play with some of them and then be able to like have them in person. Like usually when I do really well with a deck, I used to try to like uh, make it all in foreign foil and like commemorate it by saving and holding on to it. Like I had the black green adventures deck and I saved that, but uh, I can't cause it's virtual. You could do that with Phoenix though, with your historic deck. I could, but I went four and four with Phoenix. So I don't really, <laughs> do you, what do you see as like the pros and cons of alchemy as a format like i think when it when it got announced a lot of the sort of pro level high level level players at least on twitter seemed pretty excited about its creation and they i think people were excited about its flexibility and being able to not be stale but i think a lot of arena players don't seem like they've latched onto it as strongly uh what do you see as like the strengths and weaknesses of alchemy well, I actually really like that they nerf the power level of cards because when cards get reduced in power level, there's a lot more thought and strategy that has to go into winning. So I think it really favors the experienced players who have been playing for a long time. And for that reason, I like it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, maybe that's not the best marketing scheme for like getting more and more people into the game if they're playing a game that's long and complex right off the bat and somebody that's experienced is just crushing them. So I can see it being like a mixed bag from the company standpoint, but from the pro side of things, I loved the gameplay. It was, there were so many options at every point. There were so many corridors you could take. You weren't just overpowered by a card coming down and just doing gross things, unless it was like the flip side of Valky sometimes. But most of the time the cards were just like, Oh, a three, three death touch that makes you discard a card. And that card was broken in that format for four mana. I'd love to talk about Historic for a minute, especially your deck. You know, we mentioned you have this history with Is It Phoenix and Modern. You played this deck in the Historic portion of the tournament. You went 50%. Yeah. Do you think that it was deck selection, luck of the draw, something well, else entirely? I was looking at the spreadsheet of results for decks in Historic, and like 54%, I think, was like a high win rate for most people. 
historic is just kind of the wild west from what i'm visioning and it's a lot of matchup dependent results mm. so it's like oh, i played phoenix against food well i lost and uh, except for our list had a lot of tech for that matchup specifically that was one of the ways we approached the format was having a cyborg strategy specifically geared to being food which was uh phoenix's nemesis and then uh a couple times i played against blue white control and i was like yay that's the one i chew up and Right. Sure enough, those results panned out. Even though both of those players had a lot of tech ready for Phoenix, it still wasn't good enough because Phoenix is just so versatile at punching through control. So eh, that's my approach to historic. Like, I don't know that I should have picked a different deck even after the fact, even going 50-50 with it. I just think like I drew the right matchups at the right time and had an okay record in it. I'd love to touch on a couple specific choices for this deck including I, I, really starting with the sideboard Hidetsuka consumes all it looks like you're splashing one watery grave and, and two blight step pathways there were four to... there were four sources three different uh, two different pathways two copies of one of them and then a watery grave and <laughs> it's funny because some of our teammates kept making the argument like what if somebody bezedjus us then we can go get watery grave <laughs> And I was thinking, like, who is going to Bezeju Phoenix? But, okay. <laughs> so we figured out that you needed at least four sources because the velocity of Phoenix, since you draw and loot so much, can find and cast cards as long as you had at least four sources. So we were finding that to be consistent enough that we could get our black online and then play our spells in a timely fashion. Ironically, I lost one of my matches because I did not find the black source on time to cast the saga in my hand. But we you know, theorized it, ran the numbers, and it was consistent enough that most of our team uh, beat food anytime that they played it. So I think we were actually, as a team, 6-0 and with Phoenix versus food. Wow. And largely on the back of the saga? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I guess one of our teammates didn't need it, he said, but he just ran hot and had a super fast kill. Mm -hmm. uh, then everybody else was pretty much like, yep, yeah, saga blew him out, and that's all I needed. I feel like this deck, especially in historic, tends to have a lot of flex spots that people play around with. I, I'm curious, like, how did you feel about the two of Sprite Dragon or the one Ox of Agonis? Are, were those important includes? Were those just like flavor if of the you, week? If you play Phoenix, do not touch that one Ox of Agonis and almost never board it out. That card was so clutch and I can't tell you how much I love it. I almost thought like there should be a second copy in the deck. Again, you velocity through the deck really fast and just having a two-mana draw three, essentially. The only downside is when they have, like, rest in peace. But even then, sometimes it would be, like, dump my hand out, five mana, four, two, draw three. You know, I didn't have any hand left anyway. So, like, the card was just almost never bad. Uh, Sprite Dragon, it feels like a necessary evil just to have more threats, but the card is seldom good. Just there are some spots where it's like, surprise, this got you, or you need to answer this, otherwise it becomes a problem, and it kind of like throws them off in that sense. But yeah, that's not a card I particularly love to cast, and I boarded it out quite a bit, especially when I knew they were bringing in like three Mystical Disputes, for instance. Like, I don't want them to just get me a, a two-mana spell off a one-mana spell, and game theory design obviously that puts you at a disadvantage if people can have that interesting this this looks cool i uh i play a little bit of is it phoenix on on arena and i've not been playing the ox but it sounds like i have to i would highly recommend the finale was good but not as important so when it comes to like the one ofs i think the ox was like the most important one and i 
probably go even go up to two if I did it again and just cut the finale. So you mentioned you won 50% in the historic portion of the tournament. Were there any other challenges that you had to overcome on your path to the win? Challenges that I'd overcome, like, you know, being historic, being one of them where I was just doing mediocre. Or just like throughout the tournament, like what were some of the toughest positions that you were in that you either had to like play really sharply or really get lucky from your opponent's bad draws or anything else that kind of went in your favor that helped lock in your eventual success? Most of the sharp plays were in alchemy, I'd say, probably not in historic, but uh, in historic, some of the matches I played, I had to not discard a phoenix, sometimes diluting, knowing that I could cast it for four to have exact lethal on the next attack. Those are like sometimes the important plays with um, historic that aren't so clean cut because most people think, oh, I'm looting. I should just discard Phoenix. But that wasn't always the right call. Um, In Alchemy, there were a lot of um, close lines and tight plays. Like we were saying before, there's just so much to the deck. So that's probably where I'd say the most um, playability came in and where tight plays really mattered and changed the outcome. I want to go back a little bit to the preparation for this because you talked about the team. You talked about the construction of the team, but I think that a, a lot of us and our listeners are not you know, deeply familiar with the team testing process. And can you tell us a little bit about what that process looked like and how far in advance you were trying to think about your deck selection and, and how you communicate about your findings? Because I think there's that you know extremely famous and apt quote from, I think, uh, Ellen Bogan, who's like, you know, being good at magic is about inferring from small sample size, like inferring a good amount of information from a little amount of testing. And so what are your thoughts about that and and how do you execute in your testing process? Well, I agree with Andrew a lot on that because about two weeks prior to deck submission is when people even just start to think about testing. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly because a lot of times there's like a last minute change and that just changes the entire format. So you feel like a lot of time is wasted if you do more prep than that if you're more in advance of that uh, then about one week prior to it that's when people really start actually participating and cranking things up trying to get ready and then uh, the team environment it's like now through discord since it's virtual and it's not a pt house a lot of us are just in a discord channel and we have different channels separating each division of labor essentially all the decks that we see we have a, a, a section where we post like Twitter decks and brews that people come up with or seen posted. We, uh, you know, task people with certain things like we need more reps in this match versus this match. We keep spreadsheets so that we can record our results so that they're displayable later. And we can look at the data to infer what uh, needs to be done or what's better than what. So that, that's pretty much our process. So a lot of data collection, identifying where data needs to be collected, uh you just playing one-on-one on like arena or do you just jump on magic online with i guess you can just run all those no i guess you can't play alchemy on magic online so mm-hmm. well when their um tournament is on arena itself we usually try to stick with the program that it is so mostly on arena but occasionally we'll use magic online it depends uh what event it is something i've once heard a competitor say is that the quality of their play and and maybe one of the most important factors of their success is the quality of their team. Is that something that resonates with you? Like, do you think the team helps elevate you as a competitor and and likewise helps like 
get you to the point that it takes to win a pro tour? I absolutely think the quality of the team is huge, but it's not always the accolades. Like you could have hall of famers and, you know, really big names in the game on a team who don't participate much in testing. And then you could have other people who like Brent Voss, for instance, who is like a workhorse and just an excellent teammate for any team uh, comes up with unique and innovative decks, presents data in a clear and meaningful way. And those are the teammates that are like really shining when you think back on your testing and figure out like what helped you most to succeed. Interesting. And setting the team aside, and, and this is a little bit of a transitionary question into our next segment. I, I feel like this is the most important question I could ask you and, and the one I want to ask people of your level. How did you get to be so good at magic? <laughs> It's funny even hearing on my level, though, because it's just like everybody sort of has this imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. but uh, thank you. And <laughs> the way that I started out, I mean, I started playing when I was 10. So this is, uh, I'm turned 40 next year. So this is almost 30 years in and technically is 30 years because of inclusive versus exclusive. But uh, 30 years in, I've developed a lot of hours and just know the game inside and out. Uh, the game's changed a few times yeah. obviously, since I was 10. You know, we don't have Mana Bird anymore, things like that. But it hasn't changed so drastically that a lot of the same principles and rules still apply. And then I think like the human element is one of the areas where I think I uh, have a huge advantage. So I much prefer in-person play because there is a lot of, you know, reading your opponent, engaging their mannerisms on how they're playing. And then inferring data, like Andrew was saying, is also the strongest skill in the game. Because, for instance, when I was playing against, uh, who was the Esper Clerics player? I always forget his, how to pronounce his name. Well, anyway, he had, he had played a pathway on turn one, choosing white over blue. And then on turn two, played a planes to play a voice of the blessed. So what I inferred from that is didn't play planes before pathway and it was a post-board game. So he knew that archons were coming out. And what that meant was that he had just drawn planes for the turn and that it was very relevant because on the third turn had played a black white duel. So I had information about the mana resources in his hand. I knew that he had a, a threat heavy hand versus a threat light hand, just based on the order of the first two lands that were played. And those kinds of inferences are very important for knowing how to sequence your own plays. No, it's really interesting to hear because I mean, I think that's the kind of thing that I think it's easy. And I find myself autopiloting a lot, like in casual games, right? Like just with my friends or at, even at the LGS or something like that, where there's, where there's not a lot of stakes. Right. And oh, yeah. it's just like, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm not going to respect my uh, that my opponent has a game plan or that my opponent's doing anything besides putting cards on the table, right? And if I just execute my game plan, then that hopefully will be good enough. How do you think you can you can make that sort of transition between like just sort of playing cards and just chilling at the game table to being able to realize what my opponent is doing, what's happening in front of me, what happened two turns ago, one turn ago, to then execute your strategy the best. Is it a matter of just engagement or is there like patterns that you can kind of pick up over time? You definitely have to like set goals and realistic expectations for yourself. So like, for instance, in college, I got into tournament volleyball and when I'd play at high levels, I found myself growing as a player and advancing, just getting better form. 
But if I decided to play in like a local recreational league with players and everything was just sloppy and loose, I found myself getting worse as I played and having a more difficult time transitioning back. So it's fun to play the game for fun, but really the more you do it uh, loosely and don't consider plays and just play sloppy and then play against other people doing the same, you're almost training your brain in a way that goes counterintuitive to the strategy side of things. But if that's what you want out of the game, great. If you want to like win and succeed at high-level tournaments and be a pro, then there's a whole different set of things that you have to focus on. It's kind of a sacrifice. If you try to play the middle, you almost lose points and have to work twice as hard to get there. Yeah, I think that's that's what's challenging, right? Is like if you play every game like it's the Pro Tour Finals, then you might sort of burn your brain out a little bit or not have as much fun at like the LGS level or something like that. But I'm sure there has to be a balance. Like I'm sure you're having fun testing with your friends and your teammates, right? Um, sometimes <laughs> not always fun. You get roasted a lot, especially with gamers, but that part's fun. I, I like that part actually, but yeah, there's fun elements. And then there's elements that definitely feel like work. Like the PT this past weekend, it felt like work and day three, you know, I wasn't even expecting to play because I squeezed into eighth. I was exhausted. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. sitting on camera, like holding my head up and everybody kept posting that I looked tired or disinterested, but I was just exhausted. I had worked like crazy hours up to the tournament, played crazy hours, had kids that don't let you sleep very well. Yeah. And then, you know, just at that point, I was so ready to crash. After I was done with the event, I did. I slept in under a minute once my head hit the pillow and I slept for like nine hours, which is like unheard of <laughs> for me. Usually I get six. So. so I guess that makes me think like, you know, if, it, if it's a job and it's something that, you know, it's the balance between enjoying it as a game and enjoying it as a, as time spent with friends versus time executing your professional goals. Like how, what keeps you engaged in it? What keeps you enjoying it and coming back to it? Interestingly enough, my uh, Star City Games team are who I'd consider like my close friends. So like the event in Indianapolis this weekend is a team event. So I'm like excited to go there and play with like Corey Baumeister and Pete Ingram are my teammates. And as soon as we get there, we're actually going to play basketball. And then we plan on hitting a Korean barbecue joint, which is like my favorite cuisine. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, obviously we're going to play the event, but the event is not what I'm going for. Like the prize pool isn't even significant enough that it really pays for all your expenses and then some. It's more for like the the hangs with your friends and, you know, slinging some cardboard and just chatting with people. For sure. That makes sense. I mean, that's what I'm looking forward to when uh, at least Dave and potentially Stan, we're going to go down to Dallas in April. And like, I'm like, can we just not, can we not play at the event? Can we just can we do like a few, can we just do a few side events and like go get dinner and cut, <laughs> get some water burgers? When I went to SCG Philly, uh, there were two 10Ks. And after having top four chopped the modern 10K, I actually didn't even play in the Sunday Legacy one. I was just like too burnt out. It ended late. And I'm like, there's too much energy in actually playing the event. I just wanted to like hang out with my friends and do fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing I'm also curious about is when you qualify for the PT or play in, you know, a SCG main event, other high level tournaments. Is your goal always like, I am there to win? Or are you ever setting goals for yourself that are like, I'm just here to understand what the format is about, try to learn my deck a little bit. Do those goals change from tournament to tournament? Or have you kind of just reached the level where it's just like, I only have one singular vision? 
I think early on I had goals like you're saying, but now it's just to win. And I don't like how that sounds as a soundbite, but that's usually my focus is uh, a minute to try to get first. You know, since you mentioned modern is your favorite format and modern tends to be our primary focus on the dive down, I'd love to pick your brain a little bit on kind of the state of that format right now. It's gone through a ton of changes basically in the last year, including a monumental change two weeks ago with the Luris ban. Oh, yeah. How do you like modern in the post MH2 world? How do you like the impact of MH2 on the format in general? Uh, personally, I like MH2, but maybe it needs like an alchemy rebalancing or something like that. Uh, Ren and Six seems very OP. The fact that these four color or five color control decks seem to be like running away and Yorian is now like the top um, companion. Uh, I think that might need rebalancing also because I think if you're banning Luris, you probably should have also taken out Yorian if you really want to like change the format in a good way that suits what people's a uh, needs are actually asking. Like if then people are just playing Gigantha, Gigantha was never busted and that's not like a huge sacrifice. So I think that's what they should have done if they wanted to ban Luris. But it always feels to the public like uh, these new bans are always capitulation because I thought Modern was in a fine state even before Luris was banned. Like you just had to adjust and rotate around what you were expecting, and then certain decks just weren't tier level enough. But if your goal is to like play a pet deck, then your goal isn't really to win the event. It's to have fun playing your deck. So I don't even understand what the problem is about why bannings need to occur. And every time bannings occur, it feels like it negatively impacts a lot of people who spent a lot of money to get a deck that they couldn't really afford sometimes or had to slowly accumulate up to. And then a ban comes in and just wipes a deck out. And it just feels kind of harsh to people who don't have that kind of disposable income. So almost like printing new cards that are good against existing strategies rather than to uh, eliminate cards that people have been playing with. But uh, in terms of do I love modern? Absolutely. Uh, my favorite deck, the deck I top four chops in Philly with was uh, Green White Robots, which is like a fringe oh, one that right. not a lot of people play. And just having Welding Jar against the Luris decks, which is so huge. Uh, I played a lot more Steel Overseers than most people play because I love that card. It just runs away with games. Yeah. Having Hardened Scales, Token Synergies is always a lot of fun. You get to attack people in different and exciting ways. <laughs> yeah. I had one opponent. He had out um, the um, tutu with a hammer on it and the Puzzle Plus One lifelink equipment. So his creature was 1313 lifelink trample, and my one creature on board was bigger than it, and they couldn't attack. I just wow. thought that was like really funny. Something that we've noticed in our coverage of the format is that hardened scales tends to be more popular in paper and, and a little bit more of a dominant force in like the top results of paper events more so than in modern challenges, for instance, what do you think we could attribute that to? I think it's that it doesn't see a lot of play. So when it shows up in events, it's sort of a fringe deck online. People can look it up and research whatever they want while they're playing versus it. And then in person, you really can't. And I think it catches people off guard in person more because people just aren't expecting to play it. And it does a lot of the same things like KCI used to do, where it's like, here's a bunch of artifacts that are attacking you in a weird way. And surprise, you're dead. And then people are always like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, that'd be me on the other side, is the wait, what part? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in terms of the the future of modern, like where it, it can't be as flexible as alchemy, 
and they can't nerf cards and they can't always super quickly print and respond to the metagame. Um, how do you see the, the, the future of modern in terms of uh, the, the removal rather than additive changes because it's easier to ban something quickly and then to get something in the two-year print cycle or something like that? Or the sort of forced... Uh, rotational aspect of the Horizons sets. Is that something where they you think that they're just looking to make new strategies or to improve weaker strategies? Like, how do you how do you think that they should curate modern in the best way? Oh yeah, I think if there are like ten to twenty tier one decks in modern, like that's a good thing of a healthy format where you have a lot of uh, flexibility, variability that you can sort of like come in with your own unique take on things. And I like when cyborgs are a lot of excuse me, one and two ofs where you're like, you don't know what you're going to expect to see. So if a card has a flexibility to it, where it comes in a lot of matchups, utilize it, but too much of it wouldn't be good either. It really shows like the thoroughness and how deep people can go on a deck where they start to like figure out like these are the flex spots, but the number of flex spots keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller until a deck is complete. And you just know like this is optimized. That sounds like it would be a hard position to be in if you're trying to play a 95 card yorian deck where it's like finding yeah. your one or two flex spots is just like practically a losing bargain the statistics on a 90 card deck i mean they're just like absurd yeah so they're not great even. so it's uh i don't know it feels like it adds a lot more of the luck element which is the opposite of what we discussed with alchemy making more skill so that's another reason i just don't like yorian but uh, <laughs> in paper having to shuffle that many cards is kind of frustrating and i don't know it's just too overpowered of a companion. You shouldn't have an ability that, you know, blinks everything. Maybe if it was neutered to blink one thing, it might be on a normal power level. But as it stands, it's just too good. So in terms of your hopes for, let's say, Horizons 3 or any kind of supplemental sets they add to Modern or something like that, like what are you hoping that the, the future of Modern holds, at least in a, a play patterns or play styles or card availability? Well, I'd like them to recognize what those 10 to 20 options are and then print things that are on a somewhat equivalent power level that give each deck a new focus and repurpose. So like if it could develop a new axis for a deck, then that's really sweet to me. And that makes like a new and exciting format. But I don't want them to necessarily print something that's just so OP that there is no opposition anymore and this deck just becomes the best deck. And I think that's also what they're thinking now, too, because it has felt like things have been kind of evened out for a while. And I like their, their strategy of, like, let's print things that are so OP that nothing in, on its own is standing out. Because you can just come up with a different OP strategy to beat that one. So, like, oh, you're dumping your entire hand on the table on turn one? Well, here's a Fury, and let's blow them all up. It just kind of like cleans up nicely when you have, again, a rock, paper, scissor thing. But then you can look for what's consistent and then you can really iron out your own deck to know what you need to beat and how to play. That's, to me, enjoyable when you're looking for optimization and what to expect. So then uh, one of the last things I would love to talk to you about, Eli, before you have to go is the fact that you're an MTG coach. So people can rent your time online and then you offer instructions. Um, I've actually been a coach e myself I've, I've worked with dominic harvey and he's elevated my game a lot and i know that all coaches have different approaches to magic teaching i'm curious like what's your approach and outlook on coaching like what are some of the things that you like to focus on with the people you work with and and what do you think coaching can can offer players at different levels 
Sure. First, I want to say Dom's great. So excellent choice and coaching uh, partner. Uh, what I think coaching can offer people is a new perspective to their own game. So two heads are better than one. That's a basic concept that a lot of people agree with. So if you have somebody there shadowing who has a lot more experience, you can learn quite a bit from seeing how they approach the game, a lot of their unique positions and how they dial in. And then even just having that critique of your own play from somebody that has that uh, experience can help you develop and break bad habits to develop good habits. So I think it's uh, very wise when people want to elevate their game that they seek out coaching in that manner. My personal style of coaching is actually to first have you like tell me where you think you need improvement and then to observe and see if that accurately reflects that you're analyzing your own um, uh, areas of improvement uh, correctly. And then I usually ask somebody to just play a game and stream me in and then I kind of like watch over their shoulders and shadow. And meanwhile, as they're playing, we talk through some of the things like, why did you think to play that land first? Why were you choosing to kill that? How come you didn't want to attack there? Things like that. Mm-hmm. And we go into it together collaboratively in a in let's learn together type of way. But mostly it's observe you and then just participate with you so that you start to kind of see my thoughts and reasoning on why things are going that way. It's amazing. It sounds like a very therapeutic approach to coaching. <laughs> Ironically, I'm a therapist. <laughs> wow. It's all coming together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was amazing. Um, I'm so grateful that you took your some time out of your very busy schedule to chat with us. I'm sure you're doing the post pro tour press tour right now. <laughs> starting with starting with uh, you know the number one news source in magic, <laughs> the dive down. Yeah. Where can people find you online? Um, I'd love to kind of plug your outlets. Sure. I I don't really promote myself as a brand much, but I mean, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, and I'm under my own name. So Ely Cassis on Twitter, it's like Ely.Cassis1, I think, something like that. Uh, I used to stream on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash Ely Cassis, but I don't actually stream much anymore might occasionally hop on just to do a random one. But usually I'm plugging my friends who are really interested in streaming right now, like Demonic Tutors on Twitch is a good friend of mine. I actually coached him a while back and I went to high school with oh, him. Nice. Even. Okay. So, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's popular in our Discord for sure. Nice, nice. So if anybody wants to participate and join up with Demonic Tutors, I'd highly recommend that. And uh, you'd be showing me support by supporting one of my friends. And do you still write as well? I know you used to write for face-to-face. Yes, I still uh, make articles probably once a month for face-to-face games. And I'm currently sponsored by um, Team BCW. So those are the, the companies that I represent in those fashions. Very cool. And, and where can people find your coaching? Um, that's through Spike. But I don't know if they've changed that. But if you want to just direct contact me through any social media site, we can set it up. It's I'm pretty flexible on how we approach that. Hi, sweetie. You want an egg? I don't have an egg. I think I think it's time to let Ely go. That's right. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. You guys are great. And that wraps up the latest bonus episode of the Dive Down. Thank you again, Ely, for joining us on this special episode. Really nice to chat with you, and congrats on your big win. No one can take Neon Dynasty set champion away from you. If this is your first time listening to The Dive Down, 
Make sure you subscribe to get the latest episodes as soon as they come out every week. And if you use Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or just reach out to us in general, you can find us on Twitter at the dive down, all one word. You can even email us at thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support our show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash thedivedown. You can also support us while playing Magic with a Mana Trader subscription. If you use the promo code THEDIVEDOWN2022, all one word, you'll get 15% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. You can also use that promo code over at Barrister and Man to get 15% off your first order of soap, shaving products, and other grooming goods. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and win a Pro Tour!